You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, are there signs pointing towards a temporary ceasefire in Gaza? The US says what it calls the basic contours of a hostage deal have been created. We'll have the latest. Also ahead... Hungary and Sweden have strong links with more than 100 years of diplomatic relations. We are both members of EU and soon we are both allies in NATO. Could today see Hungary accepting Sweden's bid to join NATO? We'll look at what could be a key moment of progress. Also, France's president spends 13 hours at the country's agriculture fair trying to maintain peace with protesting farmers. Did he get anywhere? Plus... Repressions are continuing because Lukashenko's regime knows that they didn't manage to suppress people completely. Belarus goes to the polls with the opposition calling the elections a farce. We'll go through the newspapers and hear the latest art news as well. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, to look at what else is happening in today's news. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has warned that Russian forces are preparing for a new offensive against Ukraine in the late spring or early summer. Tens of thousands of people have gathered in Sao Paulo to support Brazil's ex-president Jair Bolsonaro, who told crowds he's a victim of political persecution. And Mauritius has stopped a ship belonging to a Norwegian cruise line holdings from docking at its ports due to what it says is a health risk after 15 passengers were placed in isolation on board. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Hungary could remove the final barrier to Sweden joining NATO later today having created a block to the country's accession for the best part of two years. The parliament is expected to vote to approve Sweden joining the military alliance, but as was the case with Turkey and its resistance, the sale of fighter jets has been part of the process. Well, joining me now from Budapest is Justin Spike, AP's Hungary correspondent. A very good morning to you, Justin. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So just explain to us what happens today. So today, as you mentioned, uh, the vote will finally go before the parliament on ratifying the protocols for Sweden to join NATO. Uh, That vote has come after nearly two years of delays. Hungary has given a number of uh, different reasons for why it's drawn out this process for so long. Primarily, they've said that uh, that, uh, lawmakers in the party of Prime Minister Viktor Orban have been offended that uh, certain Swedish politicians have sort of excoriated uh, the condition of Hungary's democracy, and they felt like they had lost trust uh, between Sweden and Hungary, and they wanted to get that settled before voting to ratify. But now, uh, in the last days, we've seen that Hungary has agreed to purchase four new fighter jets uh, from Sweden. And so you can see that perhaps uh, this arm deal was sort of working in the background as well as sort of, you know, bargaining chip in Hungary's hand. Yes, do tell us more about that arms deal, the, the fighter jets deal. So Hungary has... Uh, since 2001, been on contract leasing 14 Gripen fighter jets. These are Swiss-made uh, fighter jets. 
so they've already been in Hungary's arsenal for quite some time, but now uh, as part of the new deal, they're going to uh, be on a buy-lease program again for four additional Gripen fighter jets, and they've also extended the service contract with Sweden for the existing fleet uh, to be extended uh, until 2036. Tell us a little bit more um, about how Sweden and Hungary are are expected to get along because of this, because Hungary's resistance to Sweden, Sweden joining NATO has proven to be not just a thorn in the side for NATO, not just a thorn in the side for Sweden, but also for the European Union as well. And we've had to have the Swedish Prime Minister uh, saying we don't agree on everything, but we do agree we should work more actively together when we have common ground. I mean, is this the beginning of a new, happier chapter? Um, if you watched the meeting between uh, Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson and Viktor Orban uh, on the weekend, uh, or on Friday rather, then it, it really did appear as if as if both sides uh, were trying to portray uh, this arms deal as as a new step, a new chapter in Hungarian-Swedish relations. Uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban himself pointed out that when a country joins NATO, being a fellow member of NATO means that essentially you're ready to to die for one another. Uh, and he was referring there, of course, to Article 5 of of NATO, which says that an attack on one is an attack on all. And uh, so given the tone that uh, that both of the leaders, you know, pitched uh, on Friday, it, it, it seems like both countries are ready to come closer together on a diplomatic level. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the partnership that's now opening up between them as, uh, as two NATO countries. So as for Prime Minister Orban's part, you know, in, in the Hungarian media, he was telling his base for so long that the Swedes had offended us. They had, you know, looked down on us and, and, and how we do things here. Um, but the message he was giving on Friday is that uh, we've we've reached a, a point of compromise. Um, and from here on out, we're, we're considered allies. And how much does the, you know, the inevitable joining of Sweden um, to NATO affect things in terms of how NATO now operates and how it now can confront Russia or it can guard itself against Russia? We've already had Finland uh, join the group in the last year. Uh, what does Sweden bring to the party? Well, Sweden is a is a quite developed uh, country as as far as uh, its military capabilities are concerned, and also its positioning geostrategically or geographically uh, in the north uh, near the Baltic Sea, and also you know rather near to Russia as well. Essentially, its joining NATO extends the line of NATO all the way from from the Nordic to to Turkey in Europe, uh, and so that's a, a rather long uh, line along Russia's periphery. Um, and so I've spoken to a, a couple of Swedish analysts as well who have pointed out to me that um, that Sweden's military capabilities, not just for NATO, but in this case for Hungary as well, were something uh, that made it quite attractive uh, as a potential NATO member. And Hungary, as you see, has has taken out its bit uh, in, in taking advantage of some of those capabilities. And we saw the, the Munich Security Conference, a focus very much on Europe's ability to step up globally in the face of in the face of threat, obviously with the um, the potential of Donald Trump becoming the next U.S. Pre uh, president and, and causing trouble. Um, mm. When you now have Sweden as part of the group, I mean, how does Europe now uh, see itself as functioning militarily? Is it robust enough? I think that uh, there's been a lot of talk in the in the last couple of years since Russia launched its uh, full scale invasion of Ukraine. 
that there's a that there's a need to to rearm to form perhaps a European uh, joint military. Um, those talks have been, you know, kind of amplified in the last couple of years. And as you can see, with the swift accession of uh, relatively swift accession of NATO um, of of Sweden and and Finland into NATO, there's a, a an interest within the alliance of expanding, of taking itself perhaps more seriously, and understanding that there are existing threats uh, that perhaps um, you know had not existed in the in the in the long piece of the co uh, of the post cold war period so i think there's a lot of um, a lot of interest among european leaders uh, and a lot of uh, new impetus i think to ensure that not only nato but the european union itself is is able to defend itself against a potential uh, attack from from russia or any other adversary justin spike thank you so much for joining us on monocle radio this is the globalist The United States, Egypt, Qatar and Israel have reportedly come to an understanding of the basics of a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. The deal is still under negotiation and there will be, have to be indirect discussions by Qatar and Egypt with Hamas. Well, to get some uh, more information about this, let's hear now from Greg Karlstrom. He's a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. He joins me on the line now from Riyadh. Good morning, Greg. Hi, good morning. So this news broke uh, late Sunday. What do we know about the, the development? I think we're closer now to a hostage deal than we've been at any other point uh, in the past couple of months, but nothing is final yet. It does seem like Hamas has lowered some of its demands, the one that had been the ones that had been sticking points in the negotiations uh, in the past. So in this deal, for example, there is talk of a temporary truce, probably lasting about six weeks, but there's no mention of a permanent ceasefire, which is something that Hamas has long demanded. Uh, the number of Palestinian prisoners to be released by Israel in exchange for hostages, that also seems to have been lowered. Uh, so we're talking about probably hundreds of prisoners rather than the thousands that Hamas had been pushing for. So there is what the Israelis say is the, the framework of a deal that they might be willing to accept. The immediate question now uh, is whether Hamas was willing to agree to it and then uh, if they do, whether Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has been on the fence for months about whether or not he wants to make another hostage deal, uh, whether he's going to accept as well. Let's explore how we've got to this point so far. I think it was at the end of last week, you and I were talking about, about the fact that Israel had agreed to send a delegation to Paris to participate in peace talks. Is that what has made this come about? It did. And I think it reflects, uh, among other things, a, a change perhaps in the political calculations in Israel. We saw over the weekend there were protests, not huge protests, but protests nonetheless in Tel Aviv uh, demanding a, a deal to release the remaining hostages who were being held in Gaza. There is growing pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu, not only from the public, uh, but from some of the centrist members of his coalition, people like Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenfeld, who joined the war cabinet back in October. And they have, in a series of public and private statements recently, uh, made it clear that they think the government needs to make a hostage deal, that hostages don't have that long left to live in captivity, some of them, uh, and that there's a need for diplomacy. And they've implicitly threatened that they might leave the war cabinet, leave the government uh, if in agreements. So this is essentially um, being driven by internal pressures from the Israeli government and it's and it's very, very splintered factions. 
It is. And then you have a, a countervailing force in the form of the far right members of the government, people like Itmar Ben-Gavir, Betzalel Smotrich, uh, who have said, Smotrich explicitly said uh, in the past week or so, that he doesn't think hostages should be Israel's number one priority. He thinks that Israel should be focused on fighting Hamas and continuing the war in Gaza. That's what they've been pushing for. And they might not be happy with this emerging hostage deal, even though it doesn't talk about a, a permanent end to the war. Uh, again, it does include a temporary truce. It does include releasing Palestinian prisoners, at least some of whom are likely to have been convicted of killing Israelis or other violent acts. So there's going to be some pressure, I think, coming from the far right, uh, pushing back against Netanyahu and urging him perhaps not to make this deal. Meanwhile, the the need to get Hamas to agree to this is absolutely paramount. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, there will be indirect discussions by Qatar and, and Egypt with, with Hamas. And you said, look, the most important thing here is that Hamas has to agree to it. What is the likelihood of that and how much trust is there? It's very hard to say. I mean, you talk to some of the external Hamas leadership, the people who are based in Lebanon or based in Qatar and there is some willingness on their side to accept the deal. Uh, they are looking towards what might happen after the war. They are trying to preserve in some way their grip on power in Gaza or their ability to continue functioning as a coherent uh, political and military entity. So the external leadership is open to an agreement with the Israelis. The question is the, the people inside, people like uh, Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, uh, how he feels about this early in the war. He was opposed to negotiations with Israel over a hostage deal unless they were for a permanent end to the war and the release of thousands and thousands of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. And that's something that was a non-starter for the Israelis. It's hard to say uh, how he feels about this deal at the moment. It's become very, very difficult to communicate with him for the Egyptians, the Qataris, for Hamas itself. Uh, they're having trouble communicating with leadership in Gaza. There have always been splits within Hamas. Those splits have become bigger during the war. And, and it's very hard to say how the internal leadership now feels. Um, in the meantime, there is the increasing uh, catastrophe, the catastrophic situation in Gaza, especially in Rafa. Um, and the Gaza death toll has been marked yesterday as being set to pass 30,000. What would happen if Israel were to launch a ground offensive on Rafah to try to root out those Hamas fighters and to release those hostages? Well, if you listen to the Israeli government, if you listen to Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, in, in interviews that he did over the weekend, he said that the Israeli army is drawing up plans to protect civilians. Uh, if you listen to the Americans, who have been strong supporters of Israel throughout all of this, but Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, uh, said yesterday that the Americans haven't seen any plans to protect civilians in Gaza. And, and I tend to believe him on this. I think you have 1.4 million people who have been displaced to Rafah. Uh, they don't really have anywhere to go. There's been some talk about trying to set up tent cities in a couple of parts of Gaza that have been relatively unscathed throughout the fighting. But it's not clear who's going to set those up, who's going to pay for that. Uh, it's a huge logistical hurdle to, to create shelter for people and then try to move humanitarian aid to people. So uh, there's almost this race right now where the Israelis are threatening this, this what they say is imminent offensive in Rafah. And then at the same time, you have this ongoing diplomacy that is meant to at least secure a pause in the war. Uh, and it's a question of, of which one of those two things is going to happen first. So when you hear Prime Minister ben Benjamin Netanyahu saying that Israel will attack Rafah, um, 
regardless of uh, whether there's a deal on on captives um, being being reached, but the assault will only be merely delayed. I mean, what does that bode? Well, on some level, he needs to say that because that is what his far-right coalition partners want to hear. That is what his base wants to hear. And so I don't think it's surprising that he would make those sorts of threats. They're also useful as a negotiating tactic. They're useful as a way to put more pressure on Hamas. So I don't think it's guaranteed that if there is this uh, six-week pause in the fighting, the offensive will will go ahead in a month and a half anyway. Uh, there is a hope, certainly amongst foreign diplomats, that if there's a stop for six weeks, that there will be tremendous pressure on Israel not to resume fighting or uh, at least not to go ahead with this major offensive at the end. So I don't think it's guaranteed that it would happen. At the same time, I, I do think it's a, a threat worth taking seriously and uh, it's something that the Americans and other countries have asked Israel not to do, and, and the Israelis in rhetoric are saying they still plan to do it. Joining me on the line from Riyadh, that was Greg Karlstrom. Thank you very much indeed, Greg. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now, the French president spent no fewer than 13 hours at France's biggest agriculture fair on Saturday, meeting unions and producers and even taking part in an unscheduled debate lasting two hours. Emmanuel Macron sought to calm tensions among the farming sector, which has held strikes, demonstrations and blockades across the country for more than a month. The protests even spilled over into the Salon d'Agriculture itself. And, of course, these blockades are being mirrored across Europe. Well, I'm joined from Brussels by the financial Times EU correspondent Alice Hancock. A very good morning to you, Alice. Good morning, Emma. So 13 hours at the Salon d'Agriculture is is a fairly impressive stretch, isn't it? I mean, yes, I think for anyone's work schedule, that's quite a long work day. Um, I mean, every year the French president visits the Salon d'Agriculture and it's, you know, it's the EU's biggest agriculture producer, France. So it's a big deal, this show. Um, But of course, this year, 13 hours is much longer than his usual um, appearance. And that shows just how concerned politicians across the bloc are about the farmers. Uh, I think particularly telling in France, um, I mean, you might have seen something similar in Germany, where they're very concerned also about the rise of the far right groups who um, people fear are sort of... uh, weaponizing these protests um, to yeah to boost far right sentiment across the bloc. Do you think that such a, a a long stretch, being so present and being willing to sit down and have conversations, not with the protesting farmers who actually stormed the salon at one stage, but actually those who would be keen to listen to him, could set um, a precedent for other leaders across the European Union who may not be so willing to give up the majority of their weekend to do this? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, Macron's not the first to have sort of, quotes dialogue with farmers. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, uh, announced last September that she would start something called a strategic dialogue with farmers. That did take quite a few months to materialise and has only just started in January. Uh, But that's a sort of roundtable. It involves a German professor who did a similar thing actually in Germany um, in the Merkel government to listen to farmers, to listen to environmental groups, to listen to lobby groups, to listen to agri-food groups, um, consumer groups, and try and work out how we can fix what is a broken farming system. Um, I do think doing a sort of 13-hour stretch amid protests is probably at the extreme end of the dialogues, and others may follow Macron's lead, um, but it just shows, I think, also the level to which the French government are worried about this. Indeed, and and what Macron said... um 
um, at the to our press conferences over the past few years. We've made progress together. We've faced crises of confidence, income and recognition. However, we have to be humble and clear-sighted. We can't solve the farming crisis in a few hours. It won't be resolved today or during the show because the, the problems across the agricultural sector are multifaceted and each one in itself would be enough to bring it to its knees. But as you say, it's incredibly deep and complicated. It's hugely deep and complicated. And I think actually we all are slightly... Um, I wouldn't say to blame, but, you know, we shouldn't call farmers just quotes farmers. It's not a monolithic group. This is small producers. This is big, you know, huge industrial farms. This is old farmers, young farmers, organic farmers. Um, and they all have slightly different concerns. Uh, what indeed has been so telling, actually, about what some of the, the lobby groups have been putting out is they say, um, you know, the European Commission's taken action, but that doesn't work for us. You know, it might be fine for the big lot farms, but we want this. Um, and so it's very difficult to respond, which I think why Macron is, you know, it's important that he said it's it's not easy. We can't solve this immediately. Um, we need to think through the a myriad of different things to to um, to make them happy. And I mean, the French government has already promised 400 million euros in concessions to farmers, things like retaining fuel subsidies. Um, and Macron has come out very vocally against the EU's Mercosur trade deal, which farmers say is undercutting them with, um, with the risk that the EU will be flooded with cheap and less environmentally friendly food imports. So he's already made some moves. Um, and of course, there, there will definitely be more to come. Which will have an, a very noticeable knock-on effect on consumers in Europe. Well, this is the question. I think the the sort of um, the elephant in the room, if you like, is how much do we pay for our food and how much are we willing to pay for our food? Um, and at the moment, there's no sort of immediate effect on consumers other than disruption of tractors blocking the motorway and not being able to get some goods in supermarkets. Like I think in, in Belgium and France last month, some supermarkets were blockaded so that they were only selling French goods and so forth. Um, but, you know, we're so used to extremely cheap food and the problem is that that doesn't recompense farmers if they're trying to make a transition to greener practices um, or even if they're just trying to compete um, with with much cheaper food imports coming from elsewhere. How much longer are we to expect to see scenes like this right across Europe? I mean, you're in Brussels this morning. The, the Belgian agricultural producers will be there out in force. Yeah, absolutely. There's more than a thousand uh, farmers expected in Brussels today. And that's because the agriculture ministers are actually meeting to discuss proposals put forward by the commission about what could be done short term. Um, the issue is that the, the bloc's 60 billion euro a year uh, common agricultural scheme uh, policy, which is a subsidy scheme for farmers, um, that is only going to be renewed in 2027. And obviously, we can't have farmers protesting until 2027. So they're desperately trying to find sort of short term solutions. And some of the things are um, finding ways to simplify bureaucracy, exempting small farms from environmental standards set under the cap, um, relaxing some standards for others. So allowing, for example, farmers to set aside grassland for arable crops um, and, you know, uh, cutting the number of on-farm visits, you know, things like that. So they're trying to find like a sort of a myriad of different things, whether that will satisfy the farmers, because actually I think what they would really like is some short-term money uh, to get them through the next year and encourage them to make the green transition. Um, but farmers I've spoken to have said, you know, we will continue protesting um, until we get what we want. And that also means protesting up until EU elections in June, which of course is what the politicians are all so worried about. 
Alice Hancock on the line from Brussels. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Still to come today? Repressions are continuing because Lukashenko's regime knows that they didn't manage to suppress people completely. We will examine the state of political oppression in Belarus following the country's parliamentary elections this weekend. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Just nudging 7.25 here in London. Let's go through today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Waldy, Europe correspondent at The Globe and Mail. A very good morning to you, Paul. How is How is the world in How is the Waldy world this morning? <laughs> Just fine, thanks. Fine. I'm delighted to hear it. Um, now, you've done some uh, searching in the papers and you've you've landed your, your... Our first point of call is an article in The Telegraph, but it's, a, it's coverage of a large press conference that the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, gave yesterday. A hugely bleak forecasting. The Russians are mounting a, a, a fresh offensive. 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died. But most importantly, the reason he is putting it this death toll so high is that they haven't been given their supplies and their, their, their military assistance on time. Yeah, they haven't. And of course, this was during the weekend when the world was celebrating, commemorating, I should say, the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And Zelensky, as you mentioned, gave this big press conference on Sunday. He announced this figure, 31,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers. Now, that's the first time in a long time Ukraine has revealed any casualty figures at all. And it's still roughly about half of U.S. intelligence estimates. And, of course, the Russians have lost an awful lot more. So we're really not quite sure exactly if this figure is accurate, whether it includes people who are missing in action. But nonetheless, he did paint a pretty grim picture of the war right now, saying that you know, the promises of Western aid just haven't materialized. The half of the aid promised hasn't come. And, you know, one good example, Canada's prime minister was there, Justin Trudeau, over the weekend in Kiev with some other world leaders. Canada announced in January 2023, so more than a year ago, that it was going to supply Ukraine with a air defense system worth about $400 million. Canada has paid for it, but it hasn't been built yet and it hasn't been delivered. And that's more than a year. And I think that speaks to the kinds of challenges Ukraine's facing. And indeed, he talks about the fact that brigades were unable to take part in this counteroffensive last yeah. year, as promised, because the Western supplies did not arrive on time. And that very, very clear, directed criticism of, of Western allies. I and mean, what effect do you think that will have if you are um, working in the governments and the logistics departments of, of US governments and British governments and German governments? Well, he has to he has to tread a pretty fine line here, because on the one hand, he wants to thank and praise and, and welcome the support that Ukraine gets from Western countries. But on the other hand, he's really trying to prod in particular the US and the US Congress to unlock the $60 billion that the U.S. has promised to Ukraine. That money hasn't happened, let alone the, the weapons. So I think he's he has to be careful about how far he goes with any kind of criticism. Uh, let's move on to a big case uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court today. Yes, yeah, a fascinating case that begins in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, this morning. This involves the internet. This involves social media in particular, Facebook, X, YouTube. And it really comes down to a question about the First Amendment. Now, the First Amendment in the U.S. protects free speech, but it also protects the freedom of the press. So the issue at hand here is, are 
platforms like Facebook and X, are they publishers like a newspaper and a magazine that are free to discern the content, limit the content, curate the content? Or are they mere transmitters like a telephone line and have to really let every kind of point of view be expressed? And of course, the debate here is, can these companies, you know, restrict types, different types of content, or are they going to be allowed just to let everybody say whatever they want? And this stems from two laws in particular, one in Texas and one in Florida, that were passed just a couple of years ago after Donald Trump was banned from X, Twitter then, uh, because of the January 6, 2021 uprising. So these state legislatures came out with laws that said you can't do that, you can't restrict this kind of free speech, it's limiting conservative point of view, and now this case has gone all the way to the Supreme Court, which is going to have to decide this pretty fundamental issue about social media and, and how it can be treated going forward. It's, a, it's an excellent article by Adam Liptak in the New York Times, uh, which sort of pretty brilliantly summarizes the twisting, turning uh, journeys that that this debate has taken for an incredibly long time. I mean, I think it is years and years ago that I first heard this. Is it a platform? Does it have editorial control? This has been a question that will not go away. Once it gets to the Supreme Court, there's no suggestion that that will be the end of it, is there? Well, no, because, of course, the Supreme Court can only interpret the existing laws. It'll be up to the government, the federal government and different states to decide how far they're going to go with their individual laws. Uh, Finally, a wonderful uh, story that's come from Canada. Um, hockey cards. Do you have hockey cards? <laughs> I don't anymore. I used to as a kid, but I certainly didn't have anywhere near the amount of hockey cards that this family had found in their basement. Okay, so there's this that this this family finds um, a box of uh, it's a case of seven and a half thousand hockey cards from 1979. They then put it to sale. I would have taken it to the tip, but I'm an idiot because this lot sold it for a little bit more, didn't they? Well, they sure did. They're getting in the order of something like 3.7 million US for this. Now, what's remarkable about this? is it's it's a box of of a case basically of boxes of cards so these things have never been opened something like 7000 of them 48 packages of 10 cards each and the real value here is this is 1979 and this is when Wayne Gretzky who of course is a hockey icon first started playing professional hockey so hockey cards uh, Wayne Gretzky Ricky hockey cards were already valuable Wayne Gretzky hockey cards in a pack that has never been opened never been found before are incredibly valuable and that's what's really driven up the price of this thing. There's never been a case, an unopened case, of these hockey cards found before. So when they hit the auction market, the price just rocketed up. Do you know who who actually has three and a half million US dollars spare to part with unopened hockey cards? I mean, I'm not trying to belittle this the seriousness of, of people's passion, but that's an awful lot of money. It's a lot of money, but when you think about it, that person has bought the entire box. What they could then do is break it down because the entire box contains 48 separate boxes that contain all the cards. So what they could then do is now try and auction off each individual box of cards, right? Which would still be unopened, would just still hold their value. So it's not exactly a crazy investment when you think about it. When you th- Actually, when you do think about it in the future, do we still collect cards? Because, you know, children nowadays do not collect stuff because it's all online. Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, nobody's collecting anything, which I guess is good news for this family in Regina that, that found this box in their basement after 40 years and decided to see what was inside it. But, yeah, I mean, people aren't collecting anything because everything's online, everything's digital. Paul Waldy, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.31. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, live on Monocle Radio. A quick summary now of the latest headlines. 
The Ukrainian president has warned that Russian forces are preparing for a new offensive against Ukraine in the late spring or early summer. President Volodymyr Zelensky also said 31,000 soldiers have died so far since Russia's full-scale invasion began two years ago. Tens of thousands of people have gathered in Sao Paulo to support Brazil's ex-president Jair Bolsonaro. Mr Bolsonaro, dressed in the green and yellow colours of the national flag, told the crowds he was a victim of political persecution. He's currently being investigated over claims he plotted a coup to stay in power after losing the election in 2022. Mauritius has stopped a ship belonging to Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings from docking at its ports to what it says is a health risk. The port authorities have taken samples from about 15 passengers who are in isolation on board. The ship has 2,184 passengers and 1,000 crew members. And a train in India has been filmed zooming at high speed past several stations without a driver. The Indian Railways have ordered an investigation after the freight train travelled more than 60 kilometres without anyone at the controls. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the last time Belarusians went to the polls for any election of real significance, it was to re-elect their longtime president, Alexander Lukashenko. And soon after, signs of protest and dissent were brutally suppressed. Well, in that context, yesterday's parliamentary elections were described as nakedly uncompetitive, as four parties who vociferously backed Mr Lukashenko were the only names on the ballot. Earlier at the Munich Security Conference, the Foreign Desk team heard from Svetlana Tiskanuska the Belarusian activist and opposition figurehead living in exile. Here's what she had to say about the state of opposition in Belarus. Inside the country, it's extremely difficult and dangerous to be vocal and active. But despite of this, despite the fact that every day in Belarus, 15, 20 people are being detained, people are finding strength to build small communities. You know, they continue to communicate. They continue to donate to Ukrainian army and support political prisoners' families. You know, repressions are continuing because Lukashenko's regime knows that they didn't manage to suppress people completely. And I'm talking to people who are inside Belarus a lot, because for me, it's important not to live in this exiled bubble but stay in contact dialogue with people inside the country and people tell me look tell to our like european friends that we are here yes we are silent at the moment because we don't want to sacrifice our freedom in vain we'll need our strength in future when the moment comes so people are very active in internet you know they might discuss politics now in kitchens people have two mobiles for example one for like clean one for KGB and one where they read news and communicate with other people and this is a ways how to survive how to continue this fight Belarusian activist Svetlana Tiskana they're talking to uh, the Foreign Desk at the Munich Security Conference. Well, listening to that was Hannah Lyubakova, who's an exiled Belarusian journalist and non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. A very good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. So just explain to us who was on this ballot at the weekend and, and who won, and does it matter? Well, that's a good question whether it matters indeed. Um, I think for Lukashenko, it was, first of all, the test of the system, right? So that was not about the elections themselves, because everybody knows that parliamentary and local elections uh, are something that don't provoke much attention from Belarusians, because they simply understand that this is not how things are decided. And the parliament is very much controlled by the regime, not to mention local authorities. 
So, of course, for Lukashenko, that was a way to show that the system works quietly, normally, that the situation the situation has stabilized. Of course, we are talking about stability um, for the regime, not for um, for for the population. So there were four parties. Uh, one of them, Belarus, which is very much pro-government, obviously. So all of them support Lukashenko. So th this party got most seats in the uh, lower chamber of the parliament. Uh, this is what we know from the results. Uh, some people are not from like any parties, but they very much support the regime as well. So the configuration of forces itself is not important. Of course, what is important is that these elections perhaps were the most clean in a sense, right? There were no alternative candidates, no oppositionist. Um, this happened for the first time in 30 years. Did anyone actually go and vote? Well, we saw some people, of course, on pictures that uh, went to vote, but uh, there are many ways how the regime forces them to do so. There are teachers, there are workers who work at state institutions or factories, there are people in the army, um, and, and so on, right? So the regime forces them to go to ballot, to voting stations, to, to cast ballots, and this is something that has been happening for decades. We have this so-called early voting, when people are asked to go and vote before the actual day. So the turnout for turnover for this, um, for this early voting was 40%, the regime said, and this is really a lot. This is something that nobody ever, like Belarus never see, never saw this before. Uh, so it only shows how the regime uh, was uh, kind of trying to show that, well, many people came and vote. But again, even this turnover was um, uh, less than, than it was before. And tell us a little bit about the, the opposition. I mean, a moment ago we heard from Svetlana Tiskanaskaya, um, who is in exile. You are in exile. What remains of any opposition inside Belarus? Of course, there are people who do not support Lukashenko. This did not change. Uh, we might not see protest and open resistance. And there are ways, uh, there are situations when I know that something happened in Belarus and I cannot even, I prefer not to share this because otherwise people will be will be arrested, will be found. So we see different um, strata, different parts of the population being arrested. Uh, right before the elections, there were wave of arrests of uh, not only activists themselves, but their families just because these families uh, received some support, some food packages from abroad, and so on. So the regime wants to destroy solidarity. The regime wants to destroy connections between people. So people do not trust each other. People do not self-organize. So this is what they want to do. There are only ways how people can now unite is, of course, uh, do some environmental initiatives, focus on, um, yeah, again, basically ecology, rather not even gender issues or whatever, right? So there are certain things where, or culture, for example. But this is, again, this is very much controlled and there are not many ways how to do it. But what I know, and well, I have connections on the ground and I have people on the ground, nothing changed, right? The pe people are just trying to survive. But in this way, when, um, you know, even these, these elections were like security, uh, like special operation, right? We did not expect any protest, but the regime literally had policemen at every um, voting stations, right? They, they had certain people controlling, being there, you know, seeing, observing. They had 30,000 CCTV cameras all over the country. So, so this was really like... Um, like a special operation from the regime, not the 
expression of the will of the people, which the elections normally are. Hannah Lubakova, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. in Zurich, 9.39 in Chisinau. And as Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine enters its third year, countries on Russia's periphery, including Moldova, are working to counter Russian influence. Last week, the EU slapped sanctions against six people and a pro-Moscow paramilitary group accused of undermining Moldovan sovereignty. But is the Eastern European country rethinking its constitutionally enshrined neutrality? Well, on the 16th of February at the Munich Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with the Moldovan Defence Minister Anatoly Nosati. And Andrew began by asking whether Moldova is thought of as a target by Russia. Russian Federation used a hybrid war against the Republic of Moldova for a long time. We've seen different kind of narratives in order to destabilize the situation, in order to make a tension among the people and have a fear that Russian Federation is still can involve and control the situation. They've done this in Moldova, they've done it in Ukraine, they're doing it in Bosnia and Herzegovina and other countries when they try to have and maintain their influence on the people, on the societies, and making sure that the countries do not continue with their strategic agenda in order to promote democratic agenda. For Moldova, for example, our strategic goal is European integration. So this is what they want to do to not allow us to advance in this direction. There is, of course, the question of somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 Russian troops on Moldovan territory in the strange little statelet called Transnistria. It's been speculated, certainly in the last two years, that that might become a launch pad for a larger operation in the same way that the Russian occupation of the Donbass was the launch pad for the invasion of Ukraine. You, You don't think that's a likelihood, though? I cannot deny that the presence of illegally stationed Russian forces on the uncontrolled territory of the Republic of Moldova, it presents a sort of the threat, but it's a measurable threat. We speak about 2,000 personnel and some additional that are part of so-called armed forces of the Transnistria region. But there are other effects that we need to take in consideration. The combat readiness, the desire to fight, definitely there might be different kind of scenarios. So that's why we are preparing our forces for the defense, if situation required. In a situation like that, a country which does not have a clause in its constitution committing itself to neutrality would be able to call upon assistance from its allies. Do you think, again, as Defence Minister, it is time that Article 11 was rethought, which does commit Moldova by constitution to being neutral and to having no foreign troops stationed on its territory? It's a complex question. So it's something what I think as a citizen or what I think as a minister. As a member of the government, I'm obliged to execute the current legislation. So the constitution clearly provisioned, stated that we are a neutral country. Neutrality makes us to work harder to develop our capabilities in order to have adequate resources to defend our country. I know NATO especially has taken a much closer interest in Moldova these last couple of years and Admiral Rob Bauer, the chair of the military committee, I think made the first visit by an occupant of that role to Moldova quite recently. Is there frustration, I guess, in the relationship between Moldova and NATO that because of that neutrality clause, NATO is perhaps not able to help 
quite as much as it might like to. We had a very good cooperation with NATO. And by the way, next month we're going to celebrate a 30th anniversary of our partnership with NATO that we started back in 94 with program Partnership for Peace. During this period of time, we implemented many programs and currently, based on the our signed in 2014 new project NATO DCBI Defense Capability Building Initiative. We started two projects and currently we extended them to 18 projects that will help us to develop and enhance our operational capabilities. And that was Moldova's Defence Minister Anatoly Nazati speaking to Andrew Muller at the Munich Security Conference earlier this month. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. here in London. It's time to talk art and culture with journalist Amarose Abrams, who joins us here in the studio. A very good morning to you, Amarose. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good morning. How is art? Art's all right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. That's the end of the interview. Thank you very much indeed. How was... uh, So tell us a little bit about um, why art is in such fine form. Art's in fine form because we have a great show. It's previewing this week. It opens on March 2nd. And um, it's the Tropical Modernism Architecture and Independent Show at the V&A. And it's just like the absolutely, the gorgeousest architecture. The gorgeousest? The gorgeousest. Okay, this is a new word. (laughs) Yeah, it's a new word coming. But um, it's just absolutely stunning. It's just like lots of glass and then, you know, beautiful kind of wood panels, just if you think about modernist architecture, but set in a tropical setting. So it kind of... um, it was initiated in Ghana and in India, and it was kind of part of the end of kind of the colonial projects there. But then, because it fits so amazingly into the landscape and it just kind of works so well in terms of the heat and the purpose of the buildings, they continued to they take it on their own kind of paths. And so it's an exhibition that explores what, what happened in Ghana and what happened in India. And how do the buildings change depending on their, on their circumstance? Um, they basically, uh, I think it's like, it's a form and function. I think it's the buildings kind of, uh, I guess in India, it's kind of like a fit more into the landscape. It's very much kind of about embracing the lushness that's outside with all of those kind of gorgeous windows and glass and kind of bringing the outside in. And then in Ghana, 
they're just really kind of functional. I went to Lagon University, uh, and it is just like really functional, beautiful buildings, but then that somehow work incredibly well in that particular landscape. And are we talking about particular architects working in particular countries, or are we looking at one architect who works across different places or, or styles? It was a pair of architects, Jane Drew and Maxwell Fry, who um, started to kind of develop um, tropical modernism. And then um, it was taken on kind of post-colonially by um, architects, including Geoffrey Bauer and Charles Correa, and um, a selection of other architects who also just kind of took the baton and ran with it locally. OK. Uh, this is at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London? Yes, Okay, I shall buy tickets for that. Um, let's move on to the next story that you brought into us. Um, the idea of uh, artists now selling their own work in order to, to raise sort of charitable... Well, it's, it's Neil Gaiman, isn't it? Auctioning off items of his estate already. Yes. Not the artist, but actually the, the, the collector. Uh, proceeds going to uh, veterans. Exactly, but it's a veteran, veteran comic book authors. And he's um, basically... Um, and it also goes to assist authors, journalists, critics and poets and dramatists who... Um, um, need medical costs. It's obviously US-based, and so you have to pay for all of that yourself there. Basically, it's like Neil Gaiman, you know, famous for Sandman, The Watchmen, and um, American Gods has put yes, forward... Yes, he's a novelist, he does comic yeah. novels, he does graphic novels, he does... I mean, he is a prolific and very skilled writer. Yes, and he almost has become a philosopher um, in his kind of legacy because of just how people have followed his kind of work. People absolutely love Neil, love him, love Neil, Neil Gaiman. And um, he's auctioning these very, very valuable drawings and kind of sketches and ideas and um, art that he's been gifted to support other writers and um, older comic book writers who maybe don't have the... Um, the kind of funds that he has access to and it's a kind of it's heritage dallas if you look up the um if you google that you can go and find um what he's got on offer and it's like i think it's a slow burn um auction so it's running uh the actual kind of um the bidding will go on to march 13th but you can bid early on some objects he has quite a lot of um He's made quite a lot of rather philosophical comments about about what he's doing, isn't he? He says, I like the idea of spreading joy, which is why he's selling some of his, his comic book art toys and other collectibles. But he also said that art ownership is custodial. It's your job to keep it safe and hope the house doesn't burn down while it's in your care. Then someone else can do the same and hope that their house doesn't burn down. It it sort of slightly moves away from the acquisitive nature of quite a lot of art collecting that we see nowadays. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess it's then um, it's your job as a kind of owner to keep these things and maybe lend them and give them public kind of um, give them kind of some uh, introduce them to the public when and where you can. So let people see them, let people access them, but make sure that they don't rot and kind of go to waste while they're in your care. I think that's kind of that's maybe more in line with what most people would um like to think of art collecting as. Indeed, and the, the pictures themselves, they're, they're very, very particular, aren't they? A lot of it sort of is, is very graphic. It's very graphic. It's very what you'd imagine as kind of comic book art, but it really has that specific look of... Um, of graphic novels, so kind of slightly angular, slightly kind of... Um, kind of like very easy to kind of read, basically... 
and the kind of slightly kind of was it kind of pow smash kind of element to it but as with everything he does it's slightly elevated slightly gothic and dark very very much so worth looking at them worth looking at uh, interviews with Neil Gaiman about his his love of co- collecting but his gen- generosity of spirit as well um finally Emma Rose, let's have a look at uh, well I'm Neil Gaiman talked about making sure that the house doesn't burn down uh, Tate is putting some of its masterpieces in a van, in a lorry, and driving them around the United Kingdom. So one wonders, you know, well, they're clearly quite, they're pretty quite comfortable and confident about their drivers. Yes, exactly. They must be, they must be, or they wouldn't be putting work by the likes of um, Roy Lichtenstein and Cornelia Parker and Wolfgang Tillmans and even Andy Warhol into the back of a van. They literally are putting it on a lorry, aren't they? They are, and it's just, I think this is just the most beautiful project, the most wonderful kind of idea and um, it takes, it's called Art Explorer Mobile Museum and it tours pieces around areas where people might not have access to the Tate Collection because obviously it belongs to the nation, but it's not accessible. Not all of it is even on view and so much stuff ends up in storage that this is just this wonderful way of taking these amazing artworks that belong to the nation and showing them to people. Now, last year they took them around Liverpool. Where are they taking them this time? It's, so it's like Nuneaton and Bedworth. It's Ashfield, Warsaw, Stoke-on-Trent, Wigan, Rotherham and Tarpoli in Cheshire. Great. And um, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and it's until March the 11th. And so if you go to artexplorer.org, and this is where you live, you can find out when they're going to be stopping in your neighbourhood. People of Tarpoli, you have been warned. Emma Rose Abrams, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Finally, we head to South Korea, where a public health alert status has been raised too severe for the first time. That's because thousands of doctors have gone on strike in protest at plans to change the way members of the medical profession are recruited. Well, John Lee is the editor of Career Pro in Seoul and joins me now. Uh, very good morning to you. Good afternoon to you, John, I should say. Good afternoon. Um, this is having a very, very visible and, and palpable effect on the medical uh situation in in South Korea, isn't it? We have emergency departments all being affected and operations being cancelled. The word that's being uh, bandied about these days is meltdown. Uh, What happened was that after about a year negotiations between the South Korean government and the medical community, the South Korean government decided to expand a number of uh, quotas for medical schools to accept students every year. Right now, uh, I believe that the numbers are capped at 3,058. Per, uh, per year. However, the government plans to expand the number by 2000 starting in 2025. And uh, doctors in this country have uh, um, essentially um, been on strike, where uh, at our last count, more than 10,000 trainee doctors and residents have tendered in their resignations. And this is um, this is down to the fact that the, this new recruitment policy and also the fact that intern and resident doctors in South Korea say that their shifts are incredibly long and the pay isn't great. I think one doctor said that they, they, they work 36-hour shifts. Uh, th- those numbers have been used. Yes, uh, they've been working 36-hour thir- shifts and apparently they've been, work- uh, they've been earning about $3,000 a month compared to the $5,000 OECD average. 
And so that has been some of their complaints. And another complaint that they've been uh, raising is that they, uh, they demand more government protection from uh, malpractice lawsuits. Uh, however, it's important to note that although these complaints have been raised by doctors, the main complaints that they have uh, used to go on their strike is not all of those factors, but rather about the quota of med- uh, for the medical schools. That's That was the thing that broke the camel's back. Tell us a little bit about how this is being received in South Korea, because if you are having your operations cancelled or you can't get into an emergency department, um, and yet there is, but there is also that um, the fact that people are quite happy about the fact that they need to boost the number of medical school admissions. I mean, what is the public's reaction to all this? Well, it's conflicted, of course. Some people will blame the doctors and others will blame the, the administration for mishandling this. But if you look at the poll numbers and the latest poll numbers that we have was from uh, last Friday, 76 percent uh, um, of South Koreans approve of the government's plans to expand quota. And that comes down to the fact that uh, there is a doctor shortage and this shortage will get more severe by uh, 2040. And so there has been a lot of people who have supported the government's measures. However, as this goes on, uh, as this progresses, and there have already been a handful of people who have died because of the lack of doctors at these uh, major hospitals, uh, people's opinions might start to shift. And we have to remember that uh, South Korea's general elections coming up in about 44 days now. And so this is a very sensitive time for a lot of people involved with the, within the government and within the doctors' union. And indeed, today, the government has issued an, an ultimatum to striking young doctors, haven't they? They've said that you've, they've got four days to report back to work. And if they don't, there could be criminal proceedings uh, brought against them? Well, I'm not sure if they actually use the word criminal proceedings, but one thing that the government has threatened is that if the doctors do not return to work by Thursday, the government could start to revoke medical licenses. And another threat that the government has used is that uh, medical uh, trainee doctors, uh, as you might be aware, South Korea has a a mandatory military conscription system, but doctors are exempt from the system. But if they resign, then starting next year, they will have to, um, uh, they will be conscripted. And unlike most other people who serve for 18 months, these people who are medically trained professionals will have to serve for 38 months in the military. Tell us a little bit about how this gets resolved so that everybody feels as if they're benefiting. Obviously, the doctors want a long-term future and security of tenure, and the government is is clearly keen to, to sort this out, given the fact that it does have an election coming up, and its reputation is on the line here. Right now, both sides are talking at each other and not listening to one another at all. The doctors have said that they are willing to go for the long haul, that was the exact term, that they uh, that they did not set an end date in mind, that they will keep protesting until they get their demands. And the President Yoon said a few days ago that this is a position that he will not compromise on. And so both sides are entrenched in their positions. And unfortunately, what's going to likely going to happen is that there will have to be an increase in the number of uh, patients who demand, uh, who, who demand immediate change or an immediate resolution. Now, there have been some former officials, former prime ministers who have tried and doctors prof- and um, professors at universities who have uh, volunteered to try to mediate between these two sides. But whether or not it will be mediated peacefully or whether or not this will go on until after the elections, that remains to be seen.
John Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist and that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and thanks to the producers Vincent McAvinney, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Noma Equa and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. <laughs> 